Leviticus chapter 1. Um, we're going to, going to attempt the impossible this morning and make it through an entire chapter of Leviticus. It's, it always helps, by the way, if you turn your Bible the right side up, um, especially in Leviticus. Sometimes you may not be able to tell the difference, but it's certainly important. Um, I was telling someone this morning, the, the first two sermons certainly felt more introductory. Today it's about to get Levitical up in here, right? So let's go ahead and read chapter 1. Uh, in its entirety, and see how the Lord is going to speak to us this morning. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay wood in order uh, on the fire. Then the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Verse 14, And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar... Ring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall spit it at its wings, split it, sorry, at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma. To the Lord. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, as we sang, it is our prayer that You would speak, that You would do so through this feeble vessel, that You might be gracious to visit Your people with Your grace and mercy, or that You would use a man, a sinful man nonetheless, to communicate your perfect word to convict us of our sin and bring healing to our souls. Lord, that you might encourage us to strive after that life that you've called us to, that we would live wholly devoted unto you in every area of life, holding nothing back. Father, I pray that if anything this morning is spoken that is confusing, that it would just pass right by, that it would not be distracting. If anything is said that is not true, Lord, I pray that it would fall harmless to the ground. 
I pray that your truth would be proclaimed and it might sink deep into our hearts, Father. Would you bring about your desired effect? We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. Last week, I know the sermon didn't make it online, so if you weren't here, I just want to tell you we considered kind of the backdrop, the primary characters that we would encounter, as well as a very important prop in the book of Leviticus. If you remember, the backdrop included the events that took place in Genesis and in Exodus. I encouraged us to make those events uh, remain firmly fixed in our minds as we consider this book. We were also, again, introduced to several characters, the Lord being the primary one, obviously. He had just ascended the the throne in the camp of Israel as their imminent holy king. And then we also met Moses, the servant of the Lord, the first great prophet and mediator standing in between God and his people. We met Israel, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been rescued by God's grace from slavery in Egypt, brought to the foot of Mount Sinai and constituted as a nation, a holy nation. Then we also saw uh, this primary prop of Leviticus being the palace tent or the tent of meeting or the tabernacle where the special presence of the holy king dwelt in the middle of his called people. And so as we begin today, we're reminded of this big picture which, which... Hopefully over a year we'll have enough to really know this is kind of the theme of the book. This big picture we saw in verse 1 of the holy king ascending his throne and calling his holy servant who would address then his holy people. That's what's happening. That's what's happening here, right? The very presence of God is in the tent of meeting. He's calling out to his holy servant Moses to therefore have him address his holy people. So... If that's the case, then then what's the very first thing that this king who has ascended the throne, what is the very first thing he's going to say to his people through his holy servant Moses? Well, what we see is that the Lord addresses his people about worship. And at the heart of Old Testament worship is sacrifice. This is what the Lord decides to begin with. The Lord addresses His people about worship, and at the heart of Old Testament worship is sacrifice. It's this very complex, sacrificial system, which is the very heart of what it means to worship God in Israel. The message that Moses is to deliver the people begins like this in in verse 2. Look at it with me. It says, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... And any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. That is the heart of Old Testament worship. See, this elaborate sacrificial system we'll be exploring over the next several weeks, it is fundamental to Israel's worship before a holy God. Remember, again, the holy king is is dwelling among a holy people. Holy in the sense only that they've been separated from the rest of humanity. They've been called and brought out literally from slavery in Egypt to the Lord himself. And now they belong to him. But we also know about this people as we've seen from the trip from Egypt to Mount Sinai. The type of people they are. They are a sinful and rebellious people. 
So the question that has to come in our minds is how is this sinful people going to dwell in the midst of a holy God? How will his wrath towards sin not break out at them at any and every moment? The answer is faith in God's ransom and purification expressed through sacrifice. That's it. That's the answer. The sacrificial system is the answer. Furthermore, the sacrifices, they didn't just serve to reconcile God's people back to him, to ransom them from judgment of sin and purify them from sin, but it also served as a means to offer a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. It offered them a means, a way of approaching the Lord for petitions. It gave them a way to make vows. See, the sacrifices, they were at the heart of Old Testament worship. And so the Lord wants Moses to explain how in the world is this going to be done. Verse 2 speaks generally as far as all offerings and sacrifices that we're going to see in the first six chapters of Leviticus. He goes on in verse 2 to say, You shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. That's, that's general. The word there, offering, there in the Hebrew is, is the word carbon. It, it refers to uh, the various types of sacrifices that we're going to encounter here. But, but I do want to notice one thing before we move on. And that is that the offering was to come from livestock. Don't miss this. That, that, that word livestock could really be translated as domestic. It was a domestic animal. It was one that belongs to them and therefore would have had great value for them. Have you ever noticed that there's no opportunity for the people of Israel to bring unto the Lord a wild animal? To go catch one, slay it, and then bring it before the Lord? This sacrifice here was to come from a personal wallet, if you will. The analogy for us would be, listen, we're, we're not going to find 20 bucks laying on the ground, bring it in, throw it in the offering plate, and think we've given something to the Lord. It should come from our paycheck. Does that make sense? That's what we see happening here. So, so that's from verse 2. It's just this general introduction so far to the sacrifices we're going to find in chapters 1 through 6. But today, we encounter the very first of those sacrifices, and that is the burnt offering. We find it here not only because it's the first sacrifice made, but it's also the most common sacrifice. As we'll see, this sacrifice in chapter 1 was to be given twice a day, in the morning and evening. So I want to start by, by doing something very quickly. I want to look very quickly at the structure of the passage of verses 3 through 17 of chapter 1. And then, and then I kind of want to look at it as one unit, okay? So very quickly, I want to look at the structure of this passage because you'll see here how it's written, the common themes here. And then we'll look at it kind of as one unit. In other words, we're not going to go line by line, verse by verse. We're going to look at the structure and then unpack it in its meaning. The structure is, is that the passage itself, it's broken into three sections. You can see that fairly clearly if you have your Bibles open. Each of these sections begin with a conditional clause. Okay? A conditional clause. For example, verse 3, it says, If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Okay? That's a conditional clause. Then it's followed, not only with a conditional clause, it's followed with a directive or imperative. A command. The directive or imperative in verse 3 is, let him offer a male without blemish. 
We see that in verse 3, but we also see it in verse 10. Again, listen, listen in verse 10 for the conditional clause and the directive imperative. If his offering is of the flocks, of the sheep, or of the goats, as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. Did you hear it? Conditional clause, directive imperative. This is hermeneutics, and it's important. Again, verse 14. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of the birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. So, conditional clause, directive or imperative, and then notice each of the three sections each end with this phrase. A burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. That's how verse 9 ends, verse 13 ends, and verse 17 ends. Same way. A burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Listen, this is to get your minds intentional about how we read God's Word, right? These are things that I know... We, we struggle reading through Leviticus and we think, what? Are, but, but note those things. Note the commonality between the passages of section. It will help you understand the structure. Those three sections explain three different types of animals used for the burnt offering. And the animals are listed from greatest to least as far as economic value. The method of sacrifice was basically identical when it comes to the animals from a herd or a flock. Um, and now there are some minor differences for birds, but that's really more of an issue of practicality, the practical nature of sacrificing a bird. It'd make much more sense not to cut the bird into many pieces, but the purpose was the same regardless of the type of animal. It's still a whole burnt offering. And so that's how we're going to look at it now. Let's expound the passage as a whole instead of looking at each section individually. This will be the teaching of the passage, right? We'll have the structure of the passage, and then we're looking at the teaching of this passage. I've got five headings under teaching of the passage, and you think they're going to go as quickly as the first three. uh, You should know better by now. They won't. Uh, But here's what this passage teaches as a whole, first and foremost. The first is the ritual God commands. The ritual God commands. What is it exactly that God is commanding or prescribing here in regards to the sacrifice? Under this heading, I, I simply just want to paint a picture for you of what this sacrifice looks like. The first thing we read in the text is the animal is brought by its owner, the one desiring to offer it to the tent of meeting, the outer court, which would have included all the area outside of the Holy of Holies. Remember, it would have been really great to have a map. I probably should have had a map here. Um, But the next thing is that would have happened is the worshiper would have reached the entrance to the tent of meeting, the outer court, and and would have done this hand-leaning ceremony. As we'll come to understand it just a little bit, in the text we just read that the worshiper laid hands on the head of the animal. But really what's happening and what's even uh, noted there in the Hebrew is a leaning upon the animal, a pressing upon the animal. So the person puts their weight on top of the animal and that signifies them transferring to the animal all the guilt and sin that was on them to the animal itself. And so they, they leaned or they pressed themselves onto the animal. While Leviticus only mentions the act itself... There almost certainly would have been some words that would have accompanied this part of the ritual. The words probably would have included the reason for bringing the sacrifice. As I mentioned, there were various reasons. It may have been that there was a child born or there was uncleanness or there was healing taking place. And so the one offering the burnt offering would have explained as he's leaning and pressing on the animal why he was bringing it. In addition, there would have likely been a song sung or recited by the priest... That would have likely said something as well, maybe assuring the one offering the sacrifice that he'd be received by God. 
But then after that, the hand-leaning ceremony, the worshiper had to kill the animal itself. I'm so glad my daughter's not in here for this one this morning. This would be tough for her. Uh, But we learned that this actually takes place north of the bronze altar. So the animal is laid in between the basin and the altar, and the person who just leaned his sins upon the animal, just associated himself with the animal, now slaughters it himself. Most likely would have slit the animal's throat. You didn't need that sign language, but that's the sign language for slitting an animal's throat. Um, The word shall kill is actually not the normal word for kill used in Hebrews, uh, but instead it's the connotation of a sacrificial slaughter. In fact, later it comes to mean specifically slaughtering an animal in a way that all the blood was drained out of it. That's most likely a similar meaning to what's happening here. And so the animal was killed in such a way that all the blood poured out of it. I really probably should stop talking to my hands here. This is going to get gross. Um, as much blood as possible was captured by the priest in this process, specifically so that it could be spread upon the altar itself. This is not a sprinkling, by the way. I know the word says that. There's a different word for sprinkling in the Hebrew. Um, this is more of a splashing. And so the animal is slaughtered, its blood is taken and thrown on each side of the altar. We're just going to do, we're just going to do the hand motions. You're going to have to live with it. Um, so um, that's what happened. So we got that so far? Blood pouring, priests catching, taking blood, splashing it. Who's hungry, right? Um, I know it sounds disgusting, but don't miss the point. You have to remember the context here. The, the blood is a purifying agent. Right? The blood is not only a purifying agent, but as we read in Leviticus 17, it's the life of the animal being offered upon the altar. And so, yeah, it would have been messy, but there's great significance behind this. Then the sacrifice was flayed or skinned as well as cut into pieces. Those pieces, all of this taking place before the altar, would have been offered by the priests on the altar itself. Placed where the fire would have been kindled or most likely had already been kindled and was to be managed by the priest. Meanwhile, the priests were offering up these pieces. While that's happening, the worshiper is taking the entrails, the innards, the intestines and the viscera of the animal and walking them over to a basin to wash them along with the legs. You might ask, why the legs? Well, we don't know for sure, but very likely because they probably had some sort of excrement on them. Especially the hind legs. Might have had some of the muck that might have made the aura unclean. They needed to be clean before they touched the hands of the priest. And the priest takes that and also burns them. So in the end, the entire animal is burned on the altar before the worshiper and the priest, offering up to God the pleasing aroma. Now, this is the ritual that I just explained. It was, it was identically... Uh, Identical when performed with an animal from the flock, goat or sheep from the next section. But there are, again, some minor differences with birds. For instance, the bird is not cut into several small pieces, but all the primary elements are there. I think we could safely assume there was some type of hand-laying-on ceremony that would have taken place. In addition, the worshiper probably would have sung a hymn or a song uh, or both, and the reason for bringing the burnt offering would have been mentioned We also see in verse 15 that the priest actually killed the bird and not the worshiper in this instance. They also drained its blood on the altar instead of capturing it in the the basin and splashing it. There was no splashing with the bird, just on the altar. Again, that was just probably most likely practical. 
And yet, the worshiper is still involved in the process. The worshiper is still reason, uh, responsible for removing the crop with its content. In case you were wondering, the crop is that little sack at the bottom of the esophagus, in between the esophagus and the stomach of the bird that captures undigested food, either to be digested later or regurgitated to feed their young. Y'all enjoying this so far? So, just so you know, uh, at the end of this section, Brother Brock actually has brought us some of his animals that we're going to bring out on stage and do this for you. You have them now? or? Okay, all right. Well, you know, let's save that for next Sunday. Family Sunday. We'll do it for kids' time. That'll be great. Yeah, all right. Um, so, <laughs> the worshiper would, would cast the crop and its contents into the ash heap east of the altar. And then the worshiper would split or tear the bird open by its wings, careful not to sever it in two, and then hand it to the priest on, to be burned on the altar. So listen, this is the ritual that God commanded. For us, the reality is it probably sounds somewhat disgusting. But it was rich with meaning. These sacrifices were, were meant to be interactive, involving both the worshiper and the priest, and they were symbolic and inclusive and moving. In fact, Dr. Winham states in his commentary, he says, Using a little imagination, every reader of the Old Testament soon realizes that these ancient sacrifices were very moving occasions. They make modern church services seem tame and dull by comparison. The ancient worshiper did not just listen to the minister and sing a few hymns. He was actively involved in the worship. He had to choose an unblemished animal from his own flock, bring it to the sanctuary, kill it and dismember it with his own hands, and then watch it go up in smoke before his very eyes. He was convinced that something very significant was achieved through these acts and knew that his relationship with God was profoundly affected by the sacrifice. So that is the ritual God commands. Secondly, I want us to look now, in light of that, at the worshipers that God invites. The ritual God commands, the worshipers... That God invites. Don't miss the significance of this at all. But all Israelites were invited to participate in offering a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Worship wasn't confined to a certain class or gender. Anyone could offer a burnt offering. In fact, the Hebrew word translated you is Adam, which means mankind. It refers to both people, male and female. The openness of the Lord's invitation here is further attested to by the three kinds of burnt offerings, isn't it? Regardless of your socioeconomic status, every Israelite was invited to worship before the very special presence of the Lord. If you couldn't afford a bull, you could purchase a sheep. If you couldn't afford a sheep, you could get a pigeon or a turtle dove. Even the sojourner, the stranger, those non-Israelites were invited to offer burnt offerings to the God of Israel. In fact, Derek Tidball explains this. He says... All were invited to draw near and present an offering to God, irrespective of their gender or their economic status and social standing. The majestic God of the Exodus and of Sinai coveted the close friendship of his people. Yet don't miss this as well. If, if God's worship is inclusive, open to all people, it is also not to be taken lightly. They were to follow specific instructions. 
As I mentioned last week, they were not to to devise their own way of approaching the Lord. They were to accompany their worship at the tent of meeting with God-honoring living in their own tent. It was not enough to merely show up and offer the offering. In fact, that's why the book of Leviticus is accompanied with much instruction on how to live a holy life before the Lord. And I need to remind you of this, or I need you to remember this, because I'm going to say some things later that could be easily misunderstood if you don't keep this in mind. Offering the sacrifice accomplishes nothing if it's offered from a cold heart and is not attached to one who's living in obedience to the Lord. In addition, they were to worship God in spirit and in truth, not go through the motions. That actually might sound familiar, similar to what I just said before about the hands, how we live, but, but actually it's, it's more specific to the heart. Right? So we immediately think of David in, in Psalm 51. You had that in your reading this week. David would later write, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. See, the point to this is, is, hear me very carefully here. The point is, all were invited. It wasn't dependent on gender, class, or even whether you're born an Israelite. All were invited to offer burnt offerings. But not all were accepted. The invitation is wide open. The acceptance is another matter entirely. All right. The worshipers God invites. The ritual God commands. Third, the sacrifice God accepts. The sacrifice God accepts. So we've already looked at the various types of sacrificial animals, but the burnt offering was meant to be costly. This is obvious, by the way, when the Lord calls for a perfect sacrifice without blemish. And a male. Unlike any of the other sacrifices that we'll look at, no one ate any of the burnt offering. It was all given to the Lord. And so let me just... Let me just throw an analogy out there. It's an imperfect analogy, but I think it's important. This would be like going wherever you go shopping at your grocery store for the month, right? Beginning of the month, you're getting the food for the whole month at, let's say, Winn-Dixie or Aldi or Costco, whatever. You're going there. You're going shopping for the month. You're purchasing all your food for the month. Then you take it straight to church. We throw it in a burn barrel and light it on fire. Gone. Poof. Smoke right before your eyes. I, I mean, it's one thing. It's one thing to purchase food and honor the Lord by giving it away. It's another thing to take a bunch of food and just burn it. But, but notice, the sacrifice also had to be the best of the herder flock. Only perfect animals were acceptable in worship. The significance of this is easy for us to miss here in the West, isn't it? Listen, Meat was rare back then. It was a rare luxury to have meat with a meal. Only the richest among the Israelites would have had any meat on any kind of regular basis. The king's table would have included meat because it was the king's table. That's what's distinguished it from the other tables. There was meat on the table. But in the ancient Near East, meat was not a regular part of the diet. And so imagine you are a poor Israelite and you're watching Bulls, sheep, birds, goats, good food just being burned on the altar. Not offered to any needy person among them. What's my point in saying that? Here, listen to me very carefully. I can't help but think 
about the fact that this says something about what God desires. Hear me, hear me very clearly. God certainly cares about vulnerable people. Yes. He cares about the poor, orphans and widows, those oppressed by wicked political institution. God cares. But he cares more about his people being rightly related to himself. He, he cares more about the worship of his people. As I mentioned, burnt offerings were, were offered twice a day, 365 days a year. They didn't stop for Christmas or Easter. The amount of food is completely burned up, and, and it's really staggering when you think about it. I won't venture to guess how many bulls, sheep, or birds were offered in any given week, month, or year, but, but suffice to say, this was a significant amount of food that simply went up in smoke. But church family... This is the nature of worship. Worship is not ultimately pragmatic or utilitarian. It's not ultimately humanistic or man-centered. True worship requires us to recognize the infinite worthiness of the one whom we worship. True worship keeps God at the center, not the world, not animals, or even people. The triune God of the Bible is the only one worthy of our worship, and Jesus himself confirms this. He teaches this exact same thing, right? You remember the story before he was crucified when a a woman pours out perfume, an alabaster jar is broken, and he's anointed with very expensive perfume. A year's wages is what we read. And the disciples were upset. Why? Why? They say, Jesus, this could have fed the poor. And he rebukes them. He says, she was right in her focus of worship. She was right in her heart and her desire to keep God at the center. Listen, Jesus didn't minimize the importance of ministries of mercy or acts of generous compassion toward the poor. No, he simply pointed out that the poor will always be among us. And and it's true. Listen, despite the very best scientific advancements of our age, the best modern minds working tirelessly to alleviate all poverty and hunger, the poor are still among us. And again, you might be asking what my point is here. It's certainly, again, not to diminish God's heart for the vulnerable, nor our calling to serve and live rightly before God. But it seems clear from God's word that there's something even more important to God and to his people than feeding the poor, fighting for the oppressed and protecting the vulnerable and it is worship this ultimately is about having our priorities straight God is at the center when we worship and anytime we place anything else at the center even something very important and near and dear to God's heart if it's not his worship it's in the wrong place no matter how good or right it might seem I'm not saying as long as we go to church, please don't take this because I generally feel like we can, our society and our culture could use a little bit more compassion for the oppressed and poor. So, so don't think what I'm saying is we can ignore the plight and destitute of people made in God's image. What I'm saying is feeding all the hungry people of the world, freeing all the oppressed and providing a family for every orphan in the world is nothing if God is not at the center of it. Putting God at the center is true Worship, As David once cried out in 2 Samuel, you remember that, right? 2 Samuel 24, 24. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. 
See, this emphasizes it's not just the best, but it's a costly sacrifice that God desires. Tidball astutes uh, correctly. He says, worship that costs nothing means nothing. Worship that is cheap leads to a cheap, superficial, and diminished experience of the living God. So here's the question. Does our worship cost us anything? Are we simply giving what is left over of our time, our finances, and our devotion? Does it really cost us anything? Listen, church family, hear this very clearly. Worship costs us something. And if it doesn't, it's not true worship. The fourth category or heading is not only the worship that God accepts, is the third. The fourth is the need that God meets. And this is pivotal. The burnt offering reveals the great need of Israel, the need God meets. It really reveals the great need of every single human being. In a word, the need is reconciliation with God. All people are estranged from God by their sin. God is our highest good, and the only real delight of our hearts has become our enemy because our sinful nature and rebellious hearts. We are like a wife who has been unfaithful to the perfect husband. We've been separated from our one true love, our strong provider and protector. We've been used and abused by the lovers we pursue. And the the burnt offering was the means of reconciliation between Israel and Israel's covenant Lord. And this reconciliation, the primary goal of the burnt offering, was accomplished through atonement. See, the sacrifice itself accomplished ransom. Ransoming the Israelites from the judgment they deserved and purifying them from sin. We see that, by the way, in the hand-leaning ceremony, which we discussed earlier, that gave a tangible and visible expression of the means of atonement. One life for another. The primary benefit for this rite was atonement. The primary purpose for the long game was reconciliation, being reconciled to God. Derek Tidball explains, he says, The burnt offering was a blood sacrifice akin to the other atonement sacrifices. And so reminds us, as Kellogg suggests, of the necessity of atonement, not so much for what we fail to do, as for what we are. That is, sinners by nature, and disposition as well, by his practice. The burnt offerings were used in various times and ways, but the primary purpose was to make atonement for the worshiper, and thereby restore harmony with God. Okay. With all that fixed firmly in our minds, I want to consider the last category, both in light of what the Israelites would have understood and as light as what we learn as well. And that is finally, the last category being the devotion God receives. The devotion God receives. Listen, the devotion received through the whole burnt offering is wholehearted. That's one of the primary points of, of the burnt offering is that everything is given. The burnt offering taught the Israelites the Lord expected and deserved for them to love Him with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength. As Tibal explains again, he says, The thrust of the sacrifice lay in the desire to cause God pleasure by offering Him a gift out of fully devoted and thankful hearts. Given this, it's obvious that it was impossible to offer an acceptable sacrifice merely by performing the outward rite. The inner disposition of the worshiper was just as important. Unless the sacrifice expressed a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, it would cause God pain rather than pleasure. 
Okay, so if this is true to the Israelites, and it is, how much more is it true of us? The the New Testament makes it clear that the sacrifice of Christ is, in fact, the perfect burnt offering. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, he said, As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Likewise, Peter points to Christ as the perfect offering when he refers to Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews goes into this great detail in a passage that refers directly to burnt offerings we read. In verse 10, he says, By that we will have seen, been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So you ready for our Leviticus question? How much more? So how much more is the perfection of Christ compared to the perfection of male bulls or goats? How much more is the whole burnt offering of Jesus Christ's body able to reconcile us to God compared to the reconciliation accomplished by the sacrifice of bulls, sheep, or birds? It's incomparable. (laughs) Okay. Then how much more should we respond with wholehearted devotion to the God who has redeemed us in Christ? Friends, I, I struggled with this this week. I just, in my study, in my prayer, in my own conviction, you know what I did? I thought so often as I was even reading this and talking about it with my wife and thinking... Man, I'm so glad we don't have to do that anymore. Right? I'm really glad we don't have to do Leviticus 1. It sounds messy and dirty. Just a mountain of showers I'd have to take. Like, I'm so glad we're in the New Testament. And then I thought, you know what? I wonder if an Old Testament worshiper were to see our worship today, if they would be just ashamed at how little it cost us. Like, if they were to hear the entirety of the gospel story, Right? That Jesus Christ came and offered us the once-for-all sacrifice that it was all done. And then he looked at our lives and our lack of devotion. And the fact that the reality is uh, worship costs us very little. In fact, even when we're mildly inconvenienced, we decide probably shouldn't worship. How ashamed they might be. And, and how they might think that something has gone wrong. And, and yes, here's, here's what we do right now, right? Here's what you're doing. Because I think we were raised in a culture of a little bit of legalism. If you're like me, probably, certainly, we saw that. The idea that doing these things and holy living is what saves you. And, and so what we do is we say, I, I know that that's wrong, right? I know the understanding that, that living holy isn't, isn't what saves you. We don't have a works-based salvation. So what we do is go completely opposite way. Say, it doesn't matter how I live. But look at our culture. Do you really think we're still struggling with legalism? Or are we struggling with a lack of holy living and devotion to Christ? My heart was broken over this. Because how much more? The reality is when we look at Leviticus and we say, I'm so glad we don't have to do all that work to honor the Lord Jesus. What we're actually saying is that those bulls and goats and birds are more valuable than Christ Jesus. We wouldn't say that verbally, but don't our lives live as if that's the case? Often. 
often know how we're in need of the grace of God, right? How thankful are we that Christ did offer us the once for all sacrifice and reconcile us to God fully and finally. How thankful we are that it's, it's not a list or a checklist that we have to accomplish. But oh friends, we need to make sure that our hearts have been changed by his gospel. We need to make sure that we have been changed unto holy living for the honor and glory of his name. Because his sacrifice is just that great. So how much more? How much more should we respond with wholehearted devotion to the God's redeemed us in Christ? How much more should we approach the throne of grace with a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving? How much more should we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? Church family, our devotion should be pure. Not less pure than what we read about in the Israelites. Our obedience should be greater. Our love should be stronger, not weaker. Our worship be more costly, not cheaper. How much more should our worship flow from hearts that have been ransomed and purified by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our covenant Lord? I'll close again with the, the words of, from this commentary from Derek Tidball, which I think has been very helpful even so far. And it's because I think he nails it. He says this, he says, the essential meaning of this sacrifice is explicitly and powerfully captured in the ritual itself. The distinguishing feature of this sacrifice as opposed to others was that the whole of it was burned up on the altar. It speaks of total surrender, entire consecration, and complete dedication to God. None of it is held back. It's offered without reserve. No less than an unqualified and unreserved giving of oneself as represented by the substitute victim was or is an adequate response to the saving grace and covenant love of God. May it be with us as well, church family. Would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? Gracious Father, Lord, I confess personally Oh, that my worship often costs me far too little. Or we confess corporately that we often offer you worship that benefits us the most. We too often think of giving you what is left over of our times, talents, treasures, and finances. Lord, our, our worship is not the best we have to offer. But often instead, it's far less than that. Father, we thank you that we do not go to an altar to offer a burnt offering that brings momentary reconciliation. We thank you that instead we are purified by a once for all sacrifice, your son Jesus Christ. We thank you that though our worship often costs us so little, because of your grace, we will stand before you justified. We cry out that we do not deserve such redemption and justification. We do not deserve all that you have accomplished by your saving grace. We are an unworthy people. Forgive us. Father, restore us. We pray for grace to strive to offer you worship. A sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that is worthy of the name of your son Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us to sacrifice in a way that cost us. Whether it be in relationships with people or sacrifice of time or our conveniences or our finances, Lord, give us the grace 
For without that grace, we will do nothing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Oh, how beautiful this gospel is. Um, as you come to our time of invitation, if, you are, um, if you're not a believer, you even just struggle with your walk with the Lord and where you stand, hear the good news of the gospel. is that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that you should have lived but, but didn't and can't because you are a sinner. And this holy God that you might think demands such tedious worship, He's the very creator and ruler over all creation. And not only that, but we know His character is good. His work is good. Therefore, He deserves all that and much more. And you, because of your sin, have an inability to worship Him as He deserves. There is a a broken relationship between you and your Creator because you are born in sin. You actively choose and have a nature that's rebellious against this Creator. And because of that, apart from someone rescuing you from that sin, you will be punished under His good and just holy wrath. You will well-deservingly be separated Him from all eternity. But the good news of the gospel of grace is that someone came, someone who worshipped in spirit and in truth perfectly, who lived a life that really gave all glory to his Father. His name is Jesus Christ. He's fully God, fully man. He purchased in his death a death he didn't deserve because there was no sin in him. He purchased in his death the very life and reconciliation that your heart longs for, if you're honest with yourself. That your heart needs, that you were created to enjoy forever. And you can have that relationship with Him this very moment, because on the cross, Lord God punished His Son, who was innocent, pouring upon Him the wrath reserved for us, and giving all those who repent of their sins and fully and finally place their trust in His finished work, A righteousness which is foreign to us, but a righteousness that is freely given. So that God the Father can be reconciled to us in such a way where He receives our worship. But it only comes through the blood of His Son. So if you have not today given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of your sins and have trusted in this finished work of Christ, then please, I beg you with my whole heart, make today that day. There's no, there's no mantra you have to repeat. You simply have to be aware of your own sinfulness and call out and ask Him to change your heart. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, to give us the gift of His righteousness. So friends, would you do that this morning? But for us, church family, I pray that you are going to wrestle with this because it was a wrestle for me this week how often and cheap my worship is how little I'm willing to sacrifice for costly worship friends I want my worship to be true because I recognize we don't have to do Leviticus 1 anymore instead we've been given something so much greater we've been given a relationship with our father through the blood of his son the perfect lamb Oh, so let us live with delight and joy and hope and full 
absolute, full devotion to Him this week. Praise be to our God and Father.